Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, your every other week look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I'm your host, Nico Perino, and on this week's episode, we're exploring one of the most controversial free speech cases in recent memory. We're exploring, of course, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. It pits liberty against equality, free speech against gay rights, or at least that's how some have characterized the case. But are these false dichotomies? What are the competing interests, and how should the Supreme Court balance them if they want to balance them at all? It's a question that has created intense divisions within the free speech community. The issue before the court is whether applying Colorado's public accommodations law to compel Jack Phillips, a Colorado baker, to create a cake for a gay wedding violates the free speech and or free exercise clauses of the First Amendment. Mr. Phillips was approached by David Mullins and Charlie Craig in 2012 to design a cake for the couple's wedding reception in Denver, Colorado. Mr. Phillips declined, reportedly saying, sorry guys, I don't make cakes for same-sex weddings. And in the 20-second conversation that followed, he allegedly offered to sell them another baked good or a pre-made cake, but the couple declined that and left the store, filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, and alleged that Mr. Phillips' denial of service discriminated against them on the basis of sexual orientation, which is a protected characteristic in Colorado. The Civil Rights Commission and Colorado state courts agreed, and the case eventually found its way to the Supreme Court of the United States, where the justices heard oral argument on December 5th of last year. Unsurprisingly, Anthony Kennedy will likely again be the deciding vote in this case, which is actually pretty interesting when you consider that Kennedy is probably the court's greatest free speech champion and also the justice who wrote the opinion in Obergefell, which is the landmark 2015 decision that required all 50 states to perform and recognize same-sex marriages. I listened to the oral argument the other day, and there are some interesting questions that Kennedy and the other justices will have to grapple with in deciding the case. For one, They may have to decide whether cake decorating is expressive activity in the first place, and if so, in what way. For purposes of determining future First Amendment protections, is a cake decorator the same or different from the florists, makeup artists, hairstylists, and other such people who are involved in preparing wedding receptions and ceremonies? They all create something after all, right? And what about other creative types? Filmmakers, oil painters, graphic designers, are their businesses public accommodations? Do they have to take all commissions? Must the opera singer perform for the Westboro Baptist Church? The sculptor sculpt for the KKK? Who can they refuse service to? Anyone who is not in a protected class? Or is it not the who, but the what that's at issue here? Masterpiece Cake Shop argues that it's not the identity of the speaker they object to, but rather the ceremony. Mr. Phillips claims he serves gay customers all the time. He even offered to sell the couple that came to his cake shop in 2012 a pre-made cake, after all. He just has a religious objection to creating a cake for gay weddings, he says. In that sense, it's the what that he says he is concerned about, not the who. But is that a facile distinction, as Mr. Mullins and Mr. Craig argue? If the what matters, what about anniversaries and birthdays? Does anyone think a baker is wishing a child a happy birthday when she bakes them a birthday cake? Does it matter if only the baker 
thinks they are wishing the child a happy birthday. In the 1995 Supreme Court case Hurley versus Irish American Gay, Lesbian, and Bisexual Group of Boston, the court held that private parade organizers cannot be compelled to include in their parade a group that expresses a message the organizers do not wish to convey. Is this case similar? Masterpiece Cake Shop argues yes, saying during oral argument that you can't force a parade to include a particular speaker. Here, we don't think you can force a speaker to join a parade. As I said, this is a complicated case that has divided the First Amendment community, as you'll hear soon. If the court rules for the baker, many actually fear it could open the floodgates for many forms of discrimination. For example, you often hear people argue that it would allow for discrimination against interracial couples. Masterpiece Cake Shop disputes this claim. They say race is different because of its unique history. But is that a compelling distinction to the rest of us? I doubt we'll answer all these questions on today's podcast. But to help us explore some of them, I'm going to play for you a debate that occurred on Monday, February 12th in Washington, D.C. as part of the First Amendment Salons series. American University Law Professor Stephen Wormiel moderated the debate, which featured past podcast guest and Davis Wright Tremaine attorney Bob Corden Revere arguing on the side of the baker along with Cato Senior Fellow Ilya Shapiro. They were up against attorney J.P. Schnapper Casteras and Human Rights Campaign Legal Director Sarah Warbello. It was a lively debate that I'm sure all of you will enjoy, but before I turn it over to Professor Wormiel, I want to note that there were audience members conferencing into the debate from New York City, so you'll sometimes hear references to New York participants in the debate. I also want to quickly thank the organizers of the First Amendment Salon, which is a quarterly gathering of First Amendment attorneys and members of the First Amendment community, where they try to bring together leading thinkers concerning a timely topic related to freedom of expression. As some of you know, since 2016, So To Speak has been the exclusive podcast home for the salons, and past salon videos, including this one, can be found in FIRE's First Amendment library and at youtube.com slash thefireorg. Now, over to Professor Wormiel. Thank you all for being here. Thank you in New York. Um, and thank you for hosting us here. We're delighted to, to get into the discussion. We are, of course, talking about Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Um, I'm sure most people are familiar with it. I'll give you the 30-second version. Uh, Jack Phillips, a baker in Lakewood, Colorado, uh, declined to provide a wedding cake to a same-sex couple who wanted to be married, Charlie Craig and David Mullins. Um, in 2012, uh, they filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, uh, which ultimately ruled in their favor. And the Colorado Court of Appeals agreed with them and the Civil Rights Commission, ruling that the baker had violated Colorado's anti-discrimination laws by refusing to provide the cake. Uh, the Colorado Supreme Court declined further review, and the U.S. Supreme Court granted cert, heard argument in December 2017, and we await decision, and here we are. Uh, to quickly frame the issues, and I'd rather let our panelists do that, but in simplest terms, this basically is the question of whether uh, free speech triumphs over civil rights law or the other way around. And that's what we're going to get into uh, right away here. Let me start with the free speech side of things. Um, I don't think I've ever seen a case, and I've been watching the Supreme Court for about 50 years now, 
uh, pains me to admit that, um, uh, that has divided the First Amendment community as much. There are amicus briefs on both sides of the case by respected and passionate First Amendment advocates. Uh, Bob Corn-Revere is on one side of that, and let's let him start with why. Is, is this compelled speech? Why do you see it that way? Okay. Uh, first, a couple of things. One is I want to acknowledge my colleague, Ronnie London, who was originally uh, slated to uh, sit in this chair. Um, Ronnie is uh, um, uh, my longtime collaborator in all of these cases. Uh, he and I did a brief together, an amicus brief, on behalf of the First Amendment Lawyers Association in this case. And so he was going to be here. He ended up having a conflict uh, that made him have to cancel, but then at the last minute, he was able to come. So such, <laughs> such is the life of the litigator, and it's why I'm stuck here and not, not Ronnie. But anyway, thank you for... Uh, why you're uh, thrilled to be here. I am thrilled yes. to be here, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, the reason that, and, and, and let me also say that, as you point out, this is a case that really does divide many people in the First Amendment community. It's one of the many reasons that makes this case a really difficult case. I mean, one is, particularly when you sympathize with the other side so much, uh, when you look at the emotional toll of a case like this, it's hard not to want to be on the other side. Um, and it's one in which there are so many people, many in this room, many in New York, and many who filed one of the 100 or so amicus briefs in the case uh, that um, made very impassioned arguments. Um, people who I respect, uh, people who I normally agree with, uh, are many of them on the other side, many of them on, on my side. I can tell you as well that there was a robust debate within the membership of the First Amendment Lawyers Association. And ultimately, uh, the decision was made to, to file the brief because of what we saw as the important First Amendment principles involved. In many ways, it reminds me of the decision that we made, and many others did too, in uh, the Westboro Baptist Church case, Snyder versus Phelps, where it is hard to find a more sympathetic party on the other side and someone who you are never going to agree with on the side in which you file a brief supporting, in that case, the Westboro Baptist Church. In that case, I thought one of the Fourth Circuit judges in the case really said it best, and this is something that we quoted uh, in our brief, and that is to say, those who defend the Constitution must sometimes share their foxhole with scoundrels of every sort, but to abandon the post because of the poor company is to sell freedom cheaply. It is a fair summary of history to say that the safeguards of liberty have often been forged in controversies involving not very nice people. And so it comes down really to, I think, the, the First Amendment principles here. Now, in many cases, and, and a lot of the reporting on this is to say, oh, come on, it's just cake. You're talking about food. Where's the First Amendment issue? And the problem is that once you agree that there is a symbolic element, once you agree that, or if you agree, that there is some degree of expression here, then it's difficult to get away from the First Amendment issue. As a matter of fact, the Colorado Court of Appeals agreed that a baker that had a, uh, a valid First Amendment claim could refuse to bake a cake under the public accommodation law because uh, if there was a sufficiently particularized message, then that would justify refusal to bake the cake. There were even a couple of cases in Colorado that reached the same conclusion. 
basically saying that a baker could refuse to bake a Bible-shaped cake uh, with a, an anti-gay message on it, and that it had a First Amendment right not to do that. So it doesn't matter if it's just food. Um, the, uh, it, it's easier to envision if you see this as a prohibition of speech than as compelled speech. So for example, if someone prohibited school children from bringing rainbow-themed cupcakes to school uh, in celebration of tolerance and uh, acceptance and all of that, then I think most of the people in this room would agree that there was a First Amendment issue here, saying that you can't, through the symbolism of food, um, express some sort of idea. Even if there are no words involved, even if it is purely symbolic, then it does represent some kind of First Amendment issue. That's really what was at issue here. It wasn't a simple refusal to serve case uh, where someone comes into a bake shop and you say, oh, you're gay, I'm not going to serve you. In fact, if you read the record, and it's a very thin record below, you find that the couple came in and when the baker explained that he wasn't going to create a, uh, a custom cake for them, said, I'll sell you anything else in the store, I'll sell you cookies, I'll do a birthday cake, I just, because of my beliefs, I can't create a wedding cake. So it's not as simple as, say, you can't come to my lunch counter. It's not a refusal to serve case. It's a question of whether or not someone can be forced to create some kind of expressive art. The second issue is this, and that is, can someone be compelled, if you agree that there is an artistic component, can someone be compelled to create art? Now, I challenge anyone in this room, anyone in New York, to name one case where someone has been forced to create a work of art. If anyone can name a First Amendment case where that's true, then we can have a, a, <laughs> an entirely different discussion. But we searched for that. As a matter of fact, the First Circuit, in a case from the 1980s, looked for the same kind of thing in a case involving the Massachusetts Civil Rights Law and whether or not the Boston Symphony Orchestra could be compelled to do a performance. And they were unable to find any decision saying that you can be compelled to create a work of art. So it's not a question of whether or not the baker was, by association, supporting gay marriage. It's not a question of whether or not he was sending a particularized message. The question is whether he does art, creates art for his living, and whether or not he can be compelled to do that. And the Supreme Court has addressed that in similar circumstances in whether or not a parade can be forced under Massachusetts civil rights law to be compelled to have an expressive unit uh, as continued as, as part of that parade. And in that case, the Supreme Court said, completely contrary to the Colorado uh, Court of Appeals below, that it doesn't matter whether or not there is some sort of particularized message that we protect modern art, we protect uh, instrumental music, and all of that because the First Amendment doesn't require that kind of particularized message. Long answer to a short question, but there it is. Let me turn to JP and get the civil rights side of this for starters. Then I have some more questions. Sure. So uh, just in terms of how, we, how to frame the issue here, I think it helps to go back to the facts just for a second. And you've summarized them quite aptly. We have uh, a small business owner who sells specialty foods and you have three individuals who walk into their sto that store and are turned away. Uh, either turned away entirely because of who they are and the, the small business owner has religious beliefs that say, I cannot, ref I cannot uh, serve that particular type of person. 
or turned away partly, that is to say uh, offering certain types of products and services and not others. And then when challenged in court, this small business owner invokes the First Amendment, either free exercise or, or uh, free speech clause or both. I could be talking about what happened to Mr. Craig and Mr. Mullins and Ms. Munn here in this case that we're discussing today in 2012 in the Masterpiece case. But what I'm actually describing is what happened to three African-American consumers in 1964 in the Newman versus Piggy Park case. There too, there was a small business owner who was later described to be an artist. He had a very special type of food, it happened to be barbecue, that he served. Uh, he too had uh, religious beliefs, whatever we might think of them now, that were uh, undoubtedly firmly held. He believed that contributing to racial intermixing in any way, uh, quote, contravened the will of God. That's what he believed. Uh, and so he, when a, a black customer who happened to be a Baptist minister walked into the store, he stood in the doorway and turned them away. And then later, when two other African-American customers came in and tried to purchase products, he said, well, you can go around back and you can get the takeout food, but you can't have the food here. So he would offer them some of the products but not others. And I think this is a distinction that's already started to come up that's going to come up more. So I raise that example not just because I think the factual parallels are rather striking, that, uh, but also because I think the, the, legal, the, the legal precedent is highly relevant and forces us to see this case in a different light. And that's because the Supreme Court unanimously held that the First Amendment could not justify differential treatment under then recently created federal public accommodations law uh, to turn away people on the basis of who they are. And that's uh, essentially the theme and the focus of the brief that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, when I was there, uh, filed, and that is the core prism through which I see the case. Oh, and let me just say, I agree with the first 20 pages of your brief. Uh, <laughs> it's the last four pages where you try and make the leap from the Piggy Park case to uh, First Amendment expression that, that I can't really agree. Uh, it's one of the reasons why, at least in the First Amendment Lawyers Association briefs, we said that the court should not address the free exercise claim because that would al allow any bigot with a Bible or a Koran to simply say, I'm not going to serve you. Uh, that's not what I think the court should address. Uh, I think it uh, should focus purely on the expressive elements. And in that case, whether or not some barbecue cook calls himself an artist, you know, I, I know we can talk about hypotheticals back and forth all night, but uh, uh, I, I think that there is a long tradition of courts being able to look at symbolic speech cases and determine whether or not there is a sufficient expressive component to protect it. Whether or not you stew your barbecue longer than other guys do, that doesn't... So let me, well, let me come back and let me ask two questions of yes, JP yes. and then another question of Bob and then we're going to get Ilya and Sarah in here as well. Um, Newman versus Piggy Park. Yes. Two things. First of all, it's a per curiam opinion. Yes. It's about two pages long. <laughs> and the part that the civil rights community is citing is two words in a footnote that says patently offensive, I think. Is that the, the right like language? That. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Um, is that really what you want to build this foundation on is one question. The other question is, at the oral argument, the lawyer for the baker, Jack Phillips, yes. argued that you could distinguish race discrimination from, other, from, from this case because race dis her argument was you, race discrimination is about the person and this case is about the message. 
Can I ask you to respond to both of those? Sure. So I, you know, I'm I'm going to refrain from defending the dignity of barbecue here because I feel like you have you have just said, you know, can never be artistry, and we have a whole paragraph on, you know, anyway. Um, as a barbecue enthusiast, I, I I take offense at that. But um, on Piggy Park, on Piggy Park itself, Carolina or Kansas City or uh, <laughs> all of the above. What kind of sauce? Um, on, on Piggy Park itself, you're right. It is, there's, most of the language is in footnote five. And I think that's because the Supreme Court knew exactly what they were doing. They were giving that First Amendment claim in that very fraught moment. Also, too, let's, let's remember the historical context in which Piggy Park, this was not a shoe-in case, right? This is after 100 years of history where religious arguments were regularly used and abused, unfortunately, to justify segregation in public accommodations, in schools, after Brown, in religion. And so we have, so we can't just look at that language in the abstract. You have in, Lo you have in Loving versus Virginia a year before Piggy Park, what I think is a momentous repudiation of the use of theological arguments to justify discrimination. And then you have a year later, just uh, uh, you have the Piggy Park decision as well. I think the Supreme Court was giving it the back of the hand for good reason. Uh, I think the brevity of it doesn't, I mean, Loving was a short decision as well. It was three or four pages. That doesn't mean it wasn't a momentous decision. And I think if a single member of the Supreme Court had felt otherwise, had thought, you know, maybe there is something to this First Amendment claim. They could have concurred, they could have dissented, but no, that was, it was a unanimous decision, and they gave it the back of the hand on a footnote. So I think, I think that is, actually supports the strength of that uh, rejection. I'm sorry, your second question was... So is that distinguishable from the facts of this case because the ah, yes, yes, lawyer yes. for the baker argued that race was about the individual right. and this case is about the message? Well, I think, I think this case is about the individual too. And I think I would take uh, some difference with how you characterize the facts at the beginning because here's what happened when uh, Mr. Craig and Mr. Phillips and their mother-in-law went into the bakery. They went in and the, ho the whole conversation, even according to Mr. Phillips, was like 20 seconds. He didn't need to, they didn't need to start talking about designs or motifs or color patterns or, you know, how, what, what artists would inspire the cake. All he needed to know was the sexual orientation of these two men. And then he turned them way out of hand. And so I think, I think that matters. I think it goes to the fact that yes, they were turned away because of who they are, much like in Piggy Park, the customers were turned away because of who they are. And Bob, you say baking a cake is different than barbecue, but let me read you the list that the justices asked about at oral argument. Yeah. Hairstylists, makeup artists, chefs, jewelers, florists, wedding invitation and menu designers, dress designers, and photographers. Every one of those was asked about by the justices. Right. Where's the line? Well, first, the easy line is photographers, always yes. Uh, that, that spoken is like a true media lawyer. Yes, okay. <laughs> well, and, and, and spoken like a photographer. Uh, and in the other cases, sometimes yes and sometimes no. Uh, just as, under the rule of the uh, um, Colorado Court of Appeals, said that some kinds of expression are going to be particular enough for us to protect it, and some aren't. You can't get away from those kinds of line drawing questions, and you have to look at the cases uh, pretty much case by case to determine whether or not there are sufficient uh, uh, element of creativity that it's going to be protected. Just like you do in any symbolic speech case, that's going to be a threshold question. 
Here, the fact that it was a 20-second conversation doesn't make a difference because what they're coming in for isn't to buy a cake off the rack, something that's already been made. They're not being turned away from buying product at the bakery. They're coming in for a specific thing, and that is a custom, specifically designed cake for them. The question is whether or not this baker can be compelled to create art uh, that is custom for, for a particular customer. And so that distinguishes it from a barbecue cook or many of these other people on the list that you get. But not all of the other people on the list. So Not all of them, no. And that's why I say Can it, I pick up on that? Yeah, yeah, please. So Eugene Volokh and I have been filing lots of briefs supporting lots of wedding vendors around the country. Just last week, we supported in the Eighth Circuit. We filed one in Telescope Media in the Eighth Circuit involving a videographer, as well as in the Kentucky Supreme Court. Uh, not in a wedding case, but it was a t-shirt printer that didn't want to print a particular t-shirt for a parade. We did the New Mexico wedding photographer. I mean, we, this is like kind of the same, you know, print it out, sign it, there you go. But we differ on this case and on Arlene's flowers. Not because the doctrine all of a sudden is different. Um, uh, he agrees with the way that, that Bob has explained the doctrine about if you're doing some sort of expressive activity, that gets free speech protection. Eugene just thinks that floristry and, and, and uh, baking, cake baking, is on the other side of the line. Look, there are hard lines to draw in lots of different things. Uh, some things are easy to say that are one side of the line or the other in terms of is that protected by the free speech clause. Uh, singing, photography, writing, uh, painting, sculpting? You could say sculptors are artists, right? Well, what is the difference between sculpting with clay or marble versus fondant and, and, and buttercream. Or ice. Or ice, for that matter. If, if you look at the, you know, one of the kind of fantastic briefs in this case, uh, you know, the, the present parties accepted, I suppose, uh, was the, the one in support of neither party by the, by the cake bakers. We have 27 full color uh, uh, photographs of these awesome cakes. I mean, these are just incredible. And I think the, the, the icing on the cake, if you will, is that it was filed by Baker Botts. Uh, but 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 anyhow, uh, there, there could be there could be hard think lines to draw. Uh, maybe barbecue artistry. I'm not exactly. I don't think that one is that. And hard. speaking of piggy park, unless, here's unless a cake shaped like a pig. Right, right. You could have barbecue in the shape of a pig. But anyway, uh, you know, on one line are those expressive things that I said, including sculptors, caking, cake baking. To me, is like sculpture and, and that sort of thing. On the other, you know, easy calls on the other side would be like limo driving. You know, there, there are certain things, and then there could be hard calls. Uh, that's fine. Just because some calls are hard to make, I'd be happy if the Supreme Court were having that whole debate. That's not how the debate went, actually. And as, as someone, as, as a representative of the only organization in the country that filed a brief both supporting Obergefell and supporting Masterpiece Cake Shop, I was a, a little dismayed that it didn't go quite that way, especially Justice Kennedy seemed to focus on something completely different, not the free exercise clause as presented, let alone the, the free speech clause, but on whether there was religious animus by the government body involved. Look, if that's the way the court rules, because that's the way Kennedy as kind of the fifth member of the majority rules, then that's just punting the issue for the, for the next case, because these things are still stacking up. So the Solicitor General did suggest the test during the oral argument is it a useful one? His suggestion was the question ought to be whether what we're talking about is predominantly art or predominantly utilitarian. Does that work? Does that help? Does that add anything? 
it gives you words. I'm not sure if it gives you a solution. It's, yeah, I, I mean, that was the court's reaction. I mean, I mean, I mean, does it convey a message, right? Because it doesn't have to be, there don't have to be words. Think about what the Supreme Court and other courts have protected, right? An armband, symbolic political speech, uh, exotic dancing, flag burning, lower courts are protected, tattoo artistry. Uh, I mean, there's a whole list of things that aren't you know, uh, uh, writing the next great American novel or pointing or, or, or painting uh, Mona Lisa, right? Well, if I can just pick up on that, because that's one of the reasons why I thought it was important to file a brief supporting those principles, because usually, and in almost every case, when we are pushing back against the government because it wants to restrict some form of symbolic speech, the entire free speech community is uh, in support of the broadest possible interpretation of how you would apply the First Amendment to protect symbolic speech, or art, or music. Uh, and here, you see a whole range of briefs, again, by many people I admire, uh, citing those very cases and, and embracing those very precedents that they fought tooth and nail to oppose. And, and so, she's trying to one of the, yeah, let me get look, I mean, one right of the there. problems here is that this isn't necessarily about speech. Um, you know, not everyone agrees, that, rather that this is about conduct. Um, you know, it, early on you said this isn't about cake. And I agree, it's not about cake, it's about discrimination. It's about uh, Jack Phillips saying that I will provide a service to some people that I won't provide to other people. Um, and I do think the fact that he dismissed them out of hand and was not willing to have a conversation with them really demonstrates that this isn't about speech because it could have been that they were simply asking for a plain chocolate cake with yellow roses. But we don't know that because he never gave them the opportunity to flip through the lookbook or have a conversation about whether or not they were asking to purchase the exact same item that he would have provided to anybody else. Nobody is suggesting that Jack Phillips doesn't have a right to say, I think daisies are the ugliest thing in the world and I'm not gonna put them on a cake. I'm not gonna put them on a cake for a Christian. I'm not gonna put them on a cake for a Jew. Um, what he's arguing is that because this couple was coming in to purchase a wedding cake and he disagreed with the fact that they were a same-sex couple getting married, he shouldn't have to provide the service. He shouldn't even have to have the conversation with them about what a cake potentially would even look like. Um, he's cut that off at the knees. Um, so, you know, there's a line to be had or a conversation to be drawn around what does it mean if the couple said, we want you to write gay is good all over this cake, right? That's, that's a question about compelled speech. But that's not what this couple asked. This but, couple never got to that point. But again, that, that gets down to whether or not the message is sufficiently particularized. And so the examples that had come to the Colorado Civil Rights Commission and uh, had been decided before saying that a baker could refuse to have passages from Leviticus condemning homosexuality because then he had a First Amendment right not to deliver that message, not to write that message on the cake. Um, and, and the question is, how particularized does the message have to be? Uh, but that's a message be, that he wouldn't have words? done for anybody, right? So, I mean, in that particular case, that baker would not have done that message for any customer coming you, in the door. It depends how you define the message, because he would not have sold to a straight couple a cake that celebrates a gay marriage. But what is a cake that celebrates a gay marriage? That's meaningless unless it's purchased by a same-sex couple. 
Well, right? no. I mean, you could have yeah. a cake purchased by an individual, let alone a couple, let alone a married couple, that says, you know, Obergefell is great, gay marriage is wonderful. But is he still discriminating against gay marriage in that instance? In that instance, he's saying, I won't provide this to anybody. But that's not what happened. That's not the facts of this particular well, one case. One of the things that the ACLU said in the brief on behalf of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission was that they would agree that strict scrutiny would apply, that First Amendment applies, if the government tried to ban, for example, cross-shaped cakes. Okay, so no words, no message, pure symbolism. Now, there's no particularized message there. Uh, you know, why would the First Amendment apply to that? Except for the context. Because you could see a pastor coming in asking for a church-shaped cake, and you can see a Klansman coming in asking for a, a, a cross-shaped cake. So, uh, context matters. You could see uh, a parent. I assume flambé. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. You, you could see parents of a little kid coming in asking for an elephant-shaped cake. You could see Donald Trump's advisors coming in for an elephant-shaped cake. Context matters. Can I ask a different question about the speech side of this? It came up a little bit at oral argument. It's in some of the amicus briefs. Assuming we're talking about speech, why is it the Baker's speech? Why isn't it the couple's speech? I would argue it's not the Baker speech. Um, that if you, let's use the jeweler for example. Uh, many people have rings inscribed on the inside that says, to my beloved, to the greatest person ever in my life. Nobody thinks that it is the jeweler who believes that the recipient of the ring is their beloved. Um, it is the speech of the customer that is being conveyed. And in fact, um, most, People operating in the public sphere, the public market, don't actually go through the machinations of finding out who it is that they're selling to. People don't have huge questionnaires. Have you ever been a a convicted of domestic violence? Is this your first marriage or your fifth marriage? Because as a society, we don't actually believe that you are condoning the marriage of whomever you are providing services for. In fact, I mean, to go down that line would mean that every business in this country would potentially be liable for how their customers utilize any given product. Uh, being a lot for the, the, the but, that, but that that wasn't the argument. I mean, the argument wasn't, although some made the argument, but I don't think the one that makes any sense. Uh, but it is not a First Amendment association case. It's not one saying that because y you have a right not to associate yourself with a given message, uh, that uh, um, that is your First Amendment that's right. That's what would be raised by like a limo driver or somebody who's not well, necessarily. That's right. that's right. Just as the, the free exercise argument is sort of this all-purpose uh, defense of, of discrimination, uh, here, uh, I, I think you get down to the expression. And again, it's the question of whether or not you can be compelled to create a work of art. This was the very question that the First Circuit addressed in the Redgrave case, when the Boston Symphony Orchestra would not be ordered to perform, uh, despite the fact that they had canceled the performance. And the court looked at it and said, we're not doing this because people are going to perceive the BSO as being aligned with uh, Vanessa Redgrave's views on Palestine. Uh, we're doing this because simply there is no precedent in all of American law saying you can force someone to do an artistic performance. 
Let me come back to JP for a second. If the court rules that this is compelled speech and violates the Baker's First Amendment rights, is there a way that that happens that you think doesn't do some damage to historic civil rights precedents? Um, I mean, it, I suppose it depends how they write the decision, but no, I think there's very serious risks of doing, uh, of undermining, seriously undermining federal civil rights laws of cr or creating such gaping doctrinal exceptions that it, I mean, all the line drawing exercises, I think we have to be clear eyed about what's going to happen here. There's going to be litigation over many of many different applications of this new exception. And, and I admire your attempts to impose some sort of limiting principles here, but I think they're highly illusory. And we would see intensive litigation about all, you know, all sorts of different businesses. I mean, even under uh, Ilya, I think your, th your brief talks about how many hundreds of thousands of people in the cake industry would be affected. If we look at the wedding industry, that's like 1.2 million employees if we start. And how many have we found out object to making a cake for gay weddings? Well, but. I mean, this is a minority of a minority. I don't think we know that. And I think signals in the law matter. And I think how we create doctrinal exceptions matter in terms of the movement of the law. And if, you, if we open up this can of worms. I'm just for protecting minority rights, you know. I think if we open up this can of worms, there's going to be many, many cases and people trying to evade the, the straightforward, otherwise straightforward application of civil rights well, laws. Do, do you think that civil rights law always trumps constitutional principle? And just to put more, a finer point on it, do you think that the Hurley case was correctly decided? I think the government has a, has a compelling interest as it has, as the Supreme Court has said, and as the Solicitor General until recently has filed in like a dozen briefs, that the government has a compelling interest in eradicating discrimination. And Hurley? Um, not necessarily rightly decided, but um, there you go. I'll bite on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Which is to say, I think it's a bizarre application of the law to have ever found a parade to be a place of public accommodation. Um, that is not consistent with public accommodation laws in the vast majority of states and how they operate. Um, you know, I do think it was a of an outlier that the state of Massachusetts interpreted their public accommodations laws uh, to see a parade as a public accommodation simply because uh, there was government involvement in terms of uh, policing uh, the streets that particular day. And it's not sort I of consistent with I don't with know those. if everybody knows what Hurley is. Can we just interrupt for a second? Hurley <laughs> yes. involved the Boston St. Patrick's Day parade and whether a gay rights group had to be allowed to march by the organizers of the parade. The Supreme Court said they did not have to be allowed to march. Um, all right, go back to your answer. And, that, and that's where the uh, Noel Francisco got his, what I thought was a rather clever line that if you can't be forced to accept someone into your parade, then you can't be forced to march in a parade either. Let me, let me check off a couple of boxes here. Does anybody think this is going to be a religion-based decision? I hope not. I mean, you'd have to, if you're predicting just based on oral argument and Kennedy is the one who matters, that seemed to be the thing that most worried him. I mean, it was remarkable. I, mean, I was that argument. I don't know if yeah. many of you probably read the transcript or listened to the audio, but just essentially cross-examining Fred Yarger, the uh, Colorado SG. You know, do you disown your you know lower public official do you you know I mean it was it was quite remarkable he was very upset by this and who said who said that we can't allow the, the uh, 
the, another, yet another example of religious bigotry to triumph or, or something like that. Right. I, I, was, I was also struck by the extent to which he followed up on those questions. I don't think that indicates that Kennedy necessarily wanted to go off on the free exercise claim. That's true. I saw that more as a viewpoint discrimination basis, saying that Colorado in the past had cut slack to bakers that didn't want to put anti-gay messages on cakes. But on the other hand, here, they put down the hammer on Charlie Phillips because uh, they thought he should have done the cake. And so it's possible that in a narrow, as-applied way, the court would look at it as a viewpoint discrimination free speech case. It's also true that discrimination motivated by religion is one of the major reasons and ways that LGBTQ people experience discrimination in this country. Um, it is extraordinarily frequent in all areas of life, uh, not only for profit businesses, but uh, in receiving critical services, uh, which the government is funding uh, religiously affiliated entities to provide. It's one of the reasons I'm an atheist. <laughs> and as a result, you know, I think that the court would be reluctant to utilize this particular case uh, as a place to sort of explore the extent to which religion can be utilized uh, as a motivating factor in permitting discrimination. So we've touched on one of the other boxes I wanted to tick off, which is, um, is this a Justice Kennedy case? Like so many other important matters at the court, is this... Is this going to come out five to four and determines right on the, where, where right Kennedy under the, stands? It falls right under the equal dignity clause. And <laughs> we'll see whose dignity uh, is uh, interfered with more, I guess, in his view. Um, but seriously, th there is, the, coming out of that briefing, this theme of dignitary harm, right? Because that goes both ways as well. Yeah. If you're forced to do something that's against your most deeply held uh, beliefs and forced to do something expressive in that manner, that's certainly a, a dignitary harm. Uh, I forget who it was that I recently read an article, actually, that said, uh, well, look, there, there, there are dignitary harms on both sides. You can't discount it. Uh, it burdens Jack Phillips more to have to essentially go out of business because he can't do this in good conscience, literally, than to have the gay couple go down the street less than a tenth of a mile where the next advertised, uh, let alone existing bakery uh, that made gay wedding cakes was. Well, I'd like, I'd like to just sort of respond briefly to something you just said, Ilya, which is, uh, you know, I'm not, there's a lot of uh, uh, somewhat overheated rhetoric about what's going on with Mr. Phillips here, uh, but I think one of the pieces is that he's going to go out of business. He could simply stop selling certain types of, uh, if he doesn't want to sell custom wedding cakes to gay couples, he doesn't have to sell wedding cakes. Well, he has. He stopped them altogether. That's cost him about 40% of his business. Is he still in business, though? He's still in business. Yeah, okay. So let's, but just to tamp down on that. Okay, I mean, so I, we, we, can only, we can only curtail 40% of your liberties then. No, I mean, if you if you are not if you're not prepared to sell your products on a non-discriminatory basis, then don't sell that particular product. I mean, that's just how public accommodations law works. But I think that this sort of alternative—I mean, we, Ilya, you and I have gotten into this before about the alternative markets uh, theory of the case here, which is that oh, you could just go down the street to the other baker, and I think that's problematic for a few reasons. First of all, in the piggy park context, you could still get the products. You could just go around back. Right? You just go around. You couldn't eat at the restaurant. You just go around to the kitchen and take the food to go. So there was an alternative market there. Or there was probably a black barbecue restaurant down the road. There was, there was separate. No one was saying that there wasn't a, another market. And in fact, there was a suggestion in this case that someone, the state could just publish a directory of like LGBT-friendly bakers and not. I mean, this happened in the Deep South. There were directories. The state doesn't need to do it. It's generally advantageous to advertise yourself well, as gay friendly. I'm not sure this is like a great shining example that we want to that we want to put our alternative markets theory on. I mean, in the deep south, black families would have to rely upon 
like AAA, you know, type guides for hotels and public accommodations that would accept African American customers, right? So this is a sort of a, a, a troubling theory, but also like let's like we're on K Street right now in the heart of Washington, D.C. So it's a little cosmopolitan of us to just say like, oh, just go to the bakery down the street. It'll be totally fine. You could just get another. In a lot of parts of the country, that's not an option. Well, that would be a different case, as the Law and Econ Scholars brief showed. Why? Because the original purpose of public accommodations laws under common law in, if we can talk about Anglo-American common law anymore after the Jeff Sessions comments today, right, which were very racist, um, check your Twitter feeds. It's all, it's, it's, it's a huge deal. <laughs> right, right, right. But anyway. Uh, we'll defend your right to talk about Anglo-American law. Right. Uh, so under, you know, original public accommodation law, those arose uh, uh, as against innkeepers. When travelers uh, along the byways of old England, if they couldn't stay, sleep, and, and, and eat at these inns along the road, then they were out of luck. And who knows how many more miles down the horse-drawn road they had to go to find that and I mean, that's dangerous, it's, you know, it, it's just not, uh, that's the parallel to the civil rights era where if uh, blacks weren't served by restaurants or hotels, they were, you know, they had no place to go. Um, and it was effectively a monopoly situation, whether state supported like Jim Crow or a natural monopoly or, or what have you. And so, yeah, if there's some sort of establishment where it's the only one for miles around and it's just an impossible burden, to go somewhere else. That's just a different case. That came up in oral argument. But that's not our modern understanding of public accommodations, uh, by far. Um, a public accommodation stretch well beyond this antiquated notion of just, uh, you know, on your travels, whether you can hit that gas station or that hotel. Um, in fact, the vast majority of states that have public accommodations laws actually apply them much more similarly to the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, which is, in essence, any place that, as a member of the public, you would expect to be able to go and be served, you cannot be discriminated against um, based on your race, based on your religion, in over half of all states, based on your sex, uh, and in 19 states, based on your sexual orientation or gender identity. And that's not even counting all the municipalities all over the country um, that have more robust uh, public accommodations laws as well. So, you know, I mean, I, I think to sort of structure this and set this up as, what public accommodations laws might have looked like in the 1800s uh, versus what they looked like in the 1960s, let alone today, is a little bit problematic. You talk about the different anti-discrimination laws in various municipalities. We're in a municipality that where political affiliation ideology is a protected class. So are you really going to say in D.C. or Seattle or certain other places that uh, Shepard Ferry, who did the famous poster of Obama, the hope, right? Uh, if he did that, then he has to do an equivalent one of uh, MAGA with, with with Trump, because otherwise he's discriminating based on political affiliation. Well, so, so let me ask you about a version of that question, which was probably the most extreme point made at oral argument. Uh, the Solicitor General at one point suggested that under the state's argument, um, a, a, an African-American sculptor could be forced to make a sculpture of a cross for a Ku Klux Klan service because that's that would be consistent with the state's public accommodation anti-discrimination theory is that is that true there's an easy answer being a member of the Ku Klux Klan is not a protected class for the Westboro Keller. Baptist Church then sorry as I was gonna say being a member of the Ku Klux Klan is not a protected <laughs> a protected class under the state statute is being a member of 
a religious organization uh, protected in the statute? Uh, probably, yes. Are there a narrow, I mean, are there a few churches which may also hold similar briefs to the Klan? I suppose. But I just, just to, like, this conversation so, gets... So then yes? The, the, the no, not for the KKK. would have to make the, uh, the, uh, the thing for the Westboro Baptist Church? Well, it depends if they were turning them away on the basis of their religion. Or if they say, I don't make, uh, you know, so KKK cakes for anybody. No, 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 not it's not a KKK cake. No. It's any cake? It's, it's a uh, religiously, uh, themed religiously themed cake for the Westboro Baptist Church. It would depend on whether or not they provide religiously themed cakes to any other customer coming in. Let's say so they do. If they do, yes. If they bake cakes, what about in the, the other the example boss? that Justice Alito gave? That uh, someone comes in for their birthday cake uh, and they ask uh, November 9th, the best day ever for my wife, right? Someone else comes in and says, I want the same thing. Oh, by the way, I'm going to use this for a crystal knock celebration. Uh, same exact cake, same everything, whether it has words or not, but it's like best day ever, you know? Um, context matters. Context matters, and is the context of your hypothetical that the speaker is the member, like, of a protected group? We get a little bit untethered from, like, there's a statute here, right? We have case law. We can't just riff on, like, what's an artist? What about, you know, we have to look at the actual four corners, and, and I, a lot of these hypotheticals don't square with right, that. Right, and, and that's the issue that the First Circuit, again, looked at in the Redgrave case, saying, if it's got to come down to a question of statutory inter interpretation versus a constitutional principle, the constitutional principle wins. Always? What about race? So is Piggy Park rightly decided? Yes, it was. Uh, but here we're talking about a First Amendment principle and, and one that the state doesn't disagree with. So it agrees that if okay. someone is expressing their First Amendment rights, then they have an exemption. So should Jack, Phillips be able, should, should Jack Phillips be able to refuse to provide a wedding cake to an interracial couple? I don't know. What's the distinction? Well, again, um, what it comes down to is whether or not someone can be, can be compelled to create art. If he refuses service entirely, uh, then yeah, he's subject to the Colorado uh, anti-discrimination law. So he says, I'll serve you a birthday cake. I'll give you cookies for your wedding. But I believe that it is a moral sin for two people who are of different races to marry. Does he have to provide them with the chocolate cake with the butter, yellow buttercream roses that he'll sell to any other customer? but would have to create Well, again, your, your hypothetical always ends with a cake that he'll sell to any other customer. And uh, in the hypothetical, uh, not the hypothetical, but in, in the facts as uh, were decided, it was creating a custom cake for a particular customer. Whether well, or not, custom. whether or not someone they get to can choose be compelled, what color the roses are. Whether or not someone can be compelled to create art. And again, I have yet to find a single case that says that that is so. Look, look, to me, I actually have a further answer. To me, that's a closer case because of the unique history of race and how inter uh, uh, attitudes against interracial marriage are necessarily indicative of uh, white superiority um, and, and black inferiority, let alone other races and, and, and whatnot. And so because of that unique history, there could be a stronger argument um, uh, I'm not a, sure which way I would fall ultimately because it's a different a fair, case. Is there a fairly compelling argument to be made uh, that homosexuality was a criminal offense in many states in this yeah, but country? Yeah, but this case is and in 2018. So what? It, it's a minority the of a minority position. I'm, I'm not sure that state's interest is so compelling 
to make sure that every last dissenter from the overwhelmingly prevailing view uh, bends their knee to the, to the orthodoxy? Well, I hardly think it's an overwhelmingly prevailing view. Just over 50% of Americans today support marriage for same-sex couples. I mean, that doesn't make it, uh, you know, rampant. Yeah, but in D.C. or in Colorado, I mean, it's different in different places, I would argue. So we should this have non-discrimination laws Crow, in it was the Alabama, majority. It was but the, not D.C. It was, well, you could, it's just like Shelby County. You can only justify certain temporary emergency inversions of the normal operation of constitutional law when you have extraordinary circumstances on the ground. So here, I mean, here's where I struggle, right? I mean, here's the problem. Is it only when LGBTQ people have adequate political power to be able to change the conversation and to ensure that there is an opportunity to prohibit discrimination do we have laws like Colorado's where, I mean, Jack Phillips notwithstanding, you're right. I think that the incidents of discrimination in a place like Colorado happen less frequently, but Alabama. But there are no protections. Well, actually, that's not quite true. There are some protections now. Limited protections for LGBTQ people in Alabama, which is where the discrimination is most likely to occur. So should we then mandate that Alabama has non-discrimination protections um, and that every Jack Phillips in a deeply southern state. Well, it depends what you mean by anti-discrimination as well, whether it involves creative expression or not. So then Jack Phillips gets to discriminate against the, the I mean, Jewish couple, Muslim here, couple. Here, if, if he disagrees with interfaith, if there's a Catholic baker that doesn't like interfaith weddings or, or, or remarriages after doesn't recognize divorce, uh, I would argue that in a creative expression type of profession, yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I... And by the way, I disagree with Bob on his characterization of like the worst scoundrels and all this. I've met Jack Phillips. I know his story. This is not the same thing as the Westboro Baptist Church, let alone the Piggy Park racists and the, I, I, the civil I rights I wasn't era. speaking of him personally. Okay. So I don't think you need, we need to cast aspersions on or really go there about uh, the particular petitioner here individually to say what people generally, as Kennedy wrote in Obergefell, who disagree with uh, same-sex sure, marriage. Sure, sure. Um, that's not the purpose of my uh, analogy. The purpose is to ask, to look at history and see where history and precedent is relevant to the questions and issues that we have at hand. And also ask, like, what do we want? If, if, if you think at best this is a gray area, then which way do you want to push the law? Right? What do you want the country to look like? Do we want to have uh, you know, a, a host of new constitutional exceptions for people who don't don't like interracial marriages and don't like inter interfaith marriages, which did come up in oral argument and which uh, they kept open. I mean, it just, it opens up a whole can of worms. Well, it does. I mean, the point that was just being made, that uh, do, do we only solve this through having sufficient political power? Well, do you really want a country where there is sufficient political power, not just to force change, which is long overdue for same-sex marriage, but also to force people to agree with you, uh, to essentially sign loyalty oaths saying that I will not discriminate Jack against... Jack Phillips uh, doesn't anybody. have to agree. I mean, he's welcome to participate. Oh, he has to, to train participate. all his bakers for a period of two years and he's, report every decision he makes about a cake. He's welcome to participate in a religious faith that condemns homosexuality. Um, he is welcome to write op-eds in the local newspaper um, saying that LGBTQ people should be recriminalized. Um, you know, I mean, that is part of his First Amendment rights. What Colorado is saying 
is not about what his cake actually looks like. He does get to dictate whether it's a mermaid cake or whether it's you know a standard white cake with lace on it. What he doesn't get to do is to say, I'm gonna pick and choose amongst my customers because I have a profound dislike for a particular group of people who are exercising their constitutional right to marry. One of the things that I've found troubling throughout this entire case is that when people talk about the First Amendment interests, um, they start from the presumption that they're trivial and that they're just not important. And having fought so many battles over the years involving rights that people have denigrated saying, that right's not important. You're not talking about something that is significant enough to me or to the body politic that we're not going to protect it. Uh, that's one of the reasons why the justification of the Colorado Court of Appeals saying that that just isn't specific enough communication for us to protect it. If it's more specific, we'll protect it. And, uh, you know, to me, uh, the sort of the dismissive attitude toward the First Amendment issue uh, is, is problematic. I don't think it's dismissive. I think there's a genuine disagreement in which many people believe that what's being regulated here is conduct. Um, it is not the message itself, and that, um, you know, to the extent that Jack Phillips is creating a cake, that again, and I really am stressing this because I do think the facts become different if it is not a cake that he would make for everyone else or a style of cake that he would make for everyone else. If I had a nickel for every time someone said, that's not speech, it's conduct, then I could retire today. Uh, there are uh, cases involving um, uh, tattoo artists uh, where essentially the government's argument was that that's not art at all, it's simply conduct. And one of the things that the Ninth Circuit said in that case was that all speech involves conduct, but we never break it down to its constituent parts and say, you use those kinds of brushes or you use this kind of material. Instead, we look at whether or not what you have done is expressive. And so that's why I think the threshold question here is whether or not uh, this baker uh, is someone who held himself out as someone who does unique designs and expressive works for that purpose. And the record, at least, is undisputed. Uh, that he saw himself that way, and that's how everyone else did, too. But I take it you don't quarrel with that there is, at some level, a distinction between conduct and speech. Of course. And that we may just draw the lines differently, because otherwise you're, right. you're talking about I mean, a car involves product designers and artists and well, no, people. I'm, I'm not sure that the, you're the, even that close because you would be arguing on the other side from me, at least. I don't want to speak for Bob in the New Mexico photographer case or the videographer case. I don't know where you stand on wedding singers, but you know they're singing other people's music. So it's not their own music, but publishing a newspaper is a whole lot of conduct. Sure. I'm going to um, take the moment to throw this open to the audience. I'm going to end, though, on one note I think, I think we could probably all agree on. The case won't turn on Justice Alito's comment that he's never had a good wedding cake. Gorsuch. <laughs> was it, I think it was, it was Gorsuch. Alito. It was um, but we would love to open it up to questions in, in New York and in Washington. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts and, and questions for the panel. And please identify yourself when you ask the question. And in New York, don't hesitate uh, to exercise your First Amendment rights. The same thing here in Washington, D.C. So, so I, have, I have a question. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I, I, I'm getting hung up uh, uh, with Bob's you know, conduct versus expression issue because 
It would be one thing if the baker said, I am not going to decorate, I'm not going to make a cake that shows two men, you know, kissing, because that's the expressive conduct I find is a violation of my religious beliefs. But it, but it feels like what he was actually saying is, I am not going to make any cake that, I, that is going to be sold to these two individuals. And that seems much more like a, a, a conduct issue than it is about the art that he is creating or not creating. I think the issue there is that many people look at this as a uh, symbolic speech case like uh, uh, United States versus O'Brien, uh, where you're talking about burning a draft card, where the idea is the conduct itself is what is expressive. And the argument here isn't that Jack Phillips' use of his oven is somehow expressive. Uh, the idea is what he is doing is creating an expressive work. And the question is whether or not someone can be compelled to create art. Go ahead. Please identify yourself. Mary Ann Zimmer. Um, and Bob and I have spoken about this case uh, some, some time back. Correct me, Bob, if I'm mistaken. I had understood that the facts of the case, the baker was willing to sell the cake with all the nice flowers, and, and the baker was very well known for like making gorgeous flowers and beautiful decorations. And that the baker was willing to sell the plaintiffs a plain cake, but the plaintiffs wanted to have something written on it. Now, am I mistaken about that? You're mistaken. Uh, now, whether, whether it was a matter of the, of the uh, baker having to write, uh, here is to Dan and Bob on their wedding. And in other words, the cake would be the same as anybody else's cake, but I thought it was a matter of what they wanted to have written no, on their no, cake. And the, never the, got the that far. The discussion never got that far. Uh, and as a matter of fact, if that had been the facts, then the Colorado Civil Rights Commission might have gone the other way because they said that if it were a particularized message that the baker could stand on his rights under the First Amendment. So and I believe that, actually Colorado and the ACLU are on opposite sides of that question. Maybe, maybe. There, although, there is a split although, on the other the side about that. Again, yeah. the ACLU uh, in its brief said that if you had a state regulation that prohibited cross-shaped cakes, that that would be subject to uh, strict scrutiny. Uh, but, but the question is you know, whether or not what he was being commissioned to do was to create art, something artistic. And the question then beyond that is whether or not the First Amendment protected his right to refuse to be compelled to do and that. And to be clear, they were permitted to come in on the day of their wedding and pick up something that was already in the case. He wouldn't even allow them to say, so this one that happens to be in the case today, I want you to make that for me so that I can guarantee I can pick it up. Well, Five days fact, later. The, the, there was, there was a, a California court that just decided a wedding cake case within the last week or so that addressed this issue, and it said the difference was between selling a cake and being required to make a cake. I, I discount that because even though it went my way, it's a California court. I prefer American courts. <laughs> <laughs> Just to add, just to add one little twist on. I think we're all assuming that uh, you know, if the couple had come in and asked for the cupcakes, or they would have given her the cupcakes. You know, they would. He could have just done that. It's actually. I'm not sure if it, this made it in the appellate record, but there's actually some suggestion that he also refused cupcake orders from gay couples. So that it, there was just a. He just didn't like 
serving and selling things to get couples. And I think that's the uh, inevitable undertone of this so case. Somehow that never made the record. Yeah, right. But it's, it, is a, it has been well reported. We all have our own hypotheticals. <clears throat> this is Floyd Abrams. Uh, the one that uh, has stuck with me the most is if an artist offered two sorts of services uh, in his gallery, which is open to the public. One, he has paintings around the room, which he will sell to anyone. And the other, he has a sign that I will paint portraits of you for $250. And his policy is he will not paint portraits of gay people or black people or Muslims or Jews. And a state body applying an anti-discrimination law says that violates our law. Bob, do you or people who agree with you think that in that circumstance that the statute would have been unconstitutionally applied? Just to, to, just to continue, I don't do this as compelling anyone to paint. What I'm, I'm talking about is a statute, and I think the statute in this case is like that, is saying you can't discriminate. If you're going to paint, and your First Amendment protected, no less, in what you paint, you can't have a policy of turning away people that you would otherwise paint but for the fact that they're black or Muslim. No, that, that's a, a very hard uh, hypothetical. And it's one of the reasons that at the outset I said that makes this case a very difficult case. I think of the two questions that were decisive to me, the first question is whether is it art? And the question is, in your hypothetical, unquestionably yes. You're talking about an act of, of creative expression. And the second question is, can you compel someone to do it? Now, as you say, well, you're painting it for everybody else, then you're not being compelled to do anything. I think once you're being compelled to create an expressive work against your principles, then you've got a very difficult First Amendment problem to solve. Uh, I think it's different from this case uh, because it is more extreme, uh, but you still have that very difficult First Amendment problem to overcome, and it's the one that the First Circuit in the Redgrave case found no answer to. It could not find a single case in which someone was forced to create an expressive work. But the forcing is you're being forced not to discriminate. Well, and, and in that case, it was, it was uh, argued that it was a violation of the Massachusetts Civil Rights Act uh, because it was violating Vanessa Redgrave's civil rights. And so again, it, it's really uh, very analogous. Doesn't, doesn't uh, it's George Freeman, doesn't the uh, fact of what you're being asked to paint or to do on your cake matter more than maybe you've discussed so far, partly because it's not in the record as the, apparently that conversation. But it seems to me there might be different results if two gay people come into the cape shop and say, make us a nice cake. We don't really care what's on it. We hear you're the guy. You can create whatever you want for us. That's one case. The other case is they come in and say, we want a cake with two guys screwing each other as the picture on the, 
on top of the cake, I could understand why this baker might object to doing that. But aren't those two cases pretty different, leading to different results? I'll answer you know, that hypothetical with yet another hypothetical going back, in that Floyd's example is, is indeed, I agree with Bob, a harder case than that same painter uh, who says, I will paint your wedding portrait, but not gay wedding portraits, because that's what this case is, right? He's like, I'm happy to paint gay people, I'm, uh, but I won't paint them at their wedding. I'm happy to paint them at their birthday celebration, their retirement celebration, whatever it is. I just, the, the wedding thing is for me, you know, a, a bridge too far. Um, but isn't Floyd's hypothetical that all they're being asked to paint is the guy's face? There's not a lot of discretion in that. I mean, how can he be opposed? The problem is compelling art. But, you know, that's what makes, you know, what makes it hard is that it's discrimination based on status. Whereas here, Bob and I hold that it's, uh, you're, you're talking about a particular event or a symbolic meaning that you're being forced to uh, convey. Well, but I actually think it's, I mean, look, I mean, so this is where I come from is, and you know, y'all don't work enough in LGBTQ issues. If you don't want to do a penis cake, you don't have to do a penis cake. You don't have to do a penis cake for anybody. Um, right, if that is your line, uh, is that you're not going to do something that's lewd. Well, actually, in some of the people I represent, they'd be very upset if you didn't do a penis cake. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, um, how can you claim that your line I'm is the only there and somebody else's line full, full uh, should be somewhere label else? And and because because yeah. it's not about... Um, so, I mean, what we are talking about in this particular case is whether or not the baker would provide the exact same service to this couple that he would do for any other couple that came in, right? I mean, the facts of this case are not about a couple requesting a cake that was unique. Um, from any other cake that he made, um, you know, he, again, like I use the daisy example, if he thinks daisies are ugly, he doesn't have to put the daisies on any couple's cake. But what he can't do is say, I don't do any cakes for you simply because of who you are. And I will, too, I'm going to open it up because I'm going to be honest, like I'm more of a civil rights lawyer than a First Amendment lawyer. Um, it is my understanding as well that when we're looking at what constitutes art, one of the things that the Supreme Court has historically looked at, or the federal courts have historically looked at, include things like what is the primary purpose um, of the good that is being created? Um, is it intended to be something that is uh, short-term or long-term? I mean, that these are factors. Right, and and I, saw, I saw those arguments in the briefs. And the problem there is, if you accept that as your standard, then no cake can ever be expressive, right? That even the hypothetical that the ACLU accepted, saying that Bible-shaped cakes can't be banned unless the state meets the strict scrutiny standard, um, that wouldn't matter because you've already adopted a rule that edible goods can't be artistic, can't be protected by the First Amendment. And that would be true no matter what you wrote on it, right? If you're saying that, hey, its primary purpose is to eat, so, you know, what the hell? There's no First Amendment issue here, even if you write the Magna Carta on it. Uh, you know, so I, I think that... I mean, I would argue that the primary purpose of a wedding cake is not to eat it. Like a normal standard cake, you know, for dinner, that is the purpose. But for a wedding cake, it's... Um, and I probably didn't know this until I got married because I was, you know, with my wife. I got to participate in the tasting. That was delicious. But, uh, you know, it's a symbolism of, you know, the union. And you're celebrating this thing and... 
Um, and that's why it's symbolic and conveys a message even if there's no words on it or, or, or a rainbow flag motif or whatever. I have two uh, two part question. If if oh identify myself, Ricky Levy. If this had been um, a, a couple, a black or a brown couple, who came in, and they were stopped twenty seconds in the door and told, "Sorry, you need to go," would this be a different case? Well, it would be if you didn't have again the offer to sell anything else in the store, right? That's one of the things that distinguishes this from Piggy Park, where you have someone stopping you at the door saying, we don't serve your kind. Uh, those weren't the facts here. Uh, the facts were, uh, and again, I, I don't know what wasn't in the record. I can only tell you what was in the record. And according to the record, uh, you know, they, they were offered to buy anything else, just that the baker would not do a custom-designed wedding cake. And if you were to win this case... Uh, it's not my case. If someone is to win this case uh, in favor of the baker, did we not then enshrine uh, discrimination? Depends how you define discrimination. Any choice is discrimination. I'm picking that, not that. I want to do that, not that. I don't want to do the penis cake. I think a more honest answer to your question is yes. Um, there is a way in which it is not impossible that the court says, uh, as was argued uh, by the U.S. government, that race is different and should be treated differently. But if we're going to open up this idea that this is uh, compelled speech as opposed to a regulation of conduct, this is absolutely going to have consequences for non-discrimination laws that have been on the books for generations at this point that prohibit discrimination on the basis of religion, that prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, and yes, that prohibit discrimination on the basis of disability status. Be before the skies fall here, keep in mind that Colorado has already said if the message is sufficiently particularized, the baker can already refuse to do, to do that. And, and there are decisions involving photographers as well, uh, and now in California and other bakers. So again, uh, the issue is In New Mexico, though, a photographer can be compelled. Well, that's right. And so the, the, there is, uh, uh, the law is in a state of flux. But, you know, the question isn't whether or not uh, public accommodation law trumps the First Amendment. The question in all of these cases has come down to, is there a sufficient First Amendment question here uh, to justify the Baker's decision? Um, and to say that if the Supreme Court supports the baker in this case, it's going to mean you'll have many more of these cases. You already have these cases involving the baker who doesn't want to put Leviticus on the cake and, and all of the others. And, and so we're going to have litigation in this area, whichever way the case gets decided. Question. Can I ask a question in New York? This is uh, Alameen Sumar, an associate at Ballard's Bar. I guess my answer to that would be, why doesn't this law pass strict scrutiny? You say this is a line-drawing exercise, but like, obviously the line that you draw permits a lot more discrimination in the service industry, and it opens up a lot more discrimination towards all kinds of people. So why isn't it totally legitimate for the state to say, we have a compelling interest in avoiding discrimination, avoiding rampant discrimination in the service industry? Ah, because it's not rampant. 
It's a minority of a minority. No, 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 no. But I, I think we agree. I mean, I was convinced by Eugene Volokh's brief that this kind of reasoning applies to lots of other fields and specialties. And I mean, Bob, you, I don't even know you, but I'm calling you Bob. You hesitated on the race question. And you don't, I mean, there's no good answer to a lot of these questions. So why doesn't this law No, the race, the race question is difficult because of our how history. Would you make, how would you make the court law, recognized in Black versus Virginia. How, how would you make this law more narrowly tailored? How would you make this law more narrowly tailored? I'm sorry? How would you make the law more narrowly tailored? <sighs> I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure the answer is in reforming the law. It's in how you apply the constitutional analysis. And again, uh, you have on the one hand, uh, Colorado saying that we will protect your First Amendment rights if your message is sufficiently particularized and offends you, uh, but we won't protect your interest if you're simply an artist. Uh, and so I think refining the constitutional analysis is a better way to go than trying to rewrite a law to target specific kinds of activities by people in the service industry. Right. Question, man. Yeah, back here. Yeah, I, I probably already fairly represent on the panel, but um, <laughs> if you say that the basis of this public accommodations law comes down to protected classes, my question is, how do you, in the event of an expressive business, wherever you happen to draw that line, we agree that there are going to be some businesses that are involved in expression. How do you prevent application of the law from being viewpoint-based? Because you're only protecting certain classes and you're only favoring speech that, or disfavoring, depending on your viewpoint or how you look at the question, you're only doing it on behalf of certain individuals or groups and how you feel or express about them or not. The short answer is the author of RAV is no longer with us, but. <laughs> I mean, I just don't think that's how the law has evolved or framed it. I mean, I don't really think of like Piggy Park or Loving as, as engaging in viewpoint discrimination against racists. Right? No, we just... because they weren't, they weren't First Amendment expression cases. They sure, were Piggy free... Park was. Yes, it was. No, no, no. It was a free exercise case. Every time you've opened your mouth here, you've presumed away the expression to get to the answer. And I understand why that's the easy way to do it. Let's assume that there is some subset of businesses where you're involved in expression. Let's yeah. take out the ones that aren't expressive, wherever you draw that line. But for those businesses that are involved in expression, if you're saying you can discriminate against someone like me because I'm not in a protected class, but you can't discriminate against this person, how do you avoid that being viewpoint discrimination? Well, so one thing I would answer is that all people are protected by civil rights laws, right? I mean, so our civil rights laws don't protect people who are black. They protect all people from discrimination on the basis of race. Um, our civil rights laws don't protect women. Um, they protect, uh, you know, all people regardless of how they understand their sex. Um, same with sexual orientation or gender identity. It's not like um, the gay bar gets to discriminate against a straight person. Um, that is actually impermissible. Uh, here in the You're right, age and disability don't. But the vast majority of our civil rights laws um, are structured so that if um, you are talking about everybody um, who is protected by those laws. I think there was another question back here, yeah. 
David Keating. I was struck, look, I didn't read the briefs and I read them quite a while ago, so I don't remember all the details, but I was struck by the, the, um, the briefs on either side and then today's discussion. I'm not really sure I understand what the actual facts of this case are. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's laughing. <laughs> but so, I mean, we, we hear that it's based on who came into the store and that it's based on expression. I'm very confused about this. I'm being tugged both ways. I really don't know what the facts are. And is there some way, I mean, maybe the court should, should the court kick this back and say, well, what really are the facts? Or Continue your conversation another 20 seconds and we'll see what happens. I, actually, I do think we all agree on the facts. I mean, I, I think every single one of us has framed up the facts uh, fairly consistently, which is this uh, gay couple walked in the door. They sat down to have a consultation about a wedding cake. And we're told at that point, because they were a gay couple, um, that the baker was not going to continue to have a conversation with them about creating a cake for their wedding. Right. You can buy anything else that's already in the store, but I'm not going to create a cake for your wedding because it's between two people of the same sex. And you can't pre-order, correct? And you can't pre-order. I think there's a question in New York. Yeah, a quick question. Um, I'm Matt Schaefer, by the way. Uh, this is picking up on what Sarah said earlier. What's the response to the argument that to my beloved is clearly not the jeweler's speech, but rather the speech of the individual who's paying for the service? The response from the other side. Oh, the, the point is, it's not that you're attributing the message to the baker, right? The point is you're being forced to create a work of art. Yeah, even, even if there's a, even if there's like a 50 foot high sign on the way into the wedding reception saying this cake, uh, you know, the, the maker of the cake disagrees with the message conveyed by the cake. Well, that's right. That I mean, doesn't remedy the issue because and, and, the and, issue comes when the baker is forced to create, add that secret ingredient of love, if you will, to the, uh, to the cake. And, and the point the is re representational art doesn't send that kind of message. It's not like if you have a message send, go to Western Union, right? Uh, we're not talking about that kind of particularized message. That was the error that the Colorado Court of Appeals made. The issue is whether or not someone is creating an artistic work and whether or not the government can compel the person to do that. I do think uh, Ms. Wagner did, uh, the lawyer for uh, the baker, did sort of keep the door open, though, to a freedom of association claim. She said, well, we just didn't, in response to the chief's question, she said, well, we just didn't bring that claim, you know, that he wasn't participating directly I think, enough. I think wisely. Well, right. In, in, a, in returning to, to Floyd's point about the artist, I, mean, I think if, I, if I'm Kehani Wiley and I'm interested in painting... Can you, can you speak closer to your mic, wherever it is? <laughs> Where are the mics? <laughs> I, I'm just uh, thinking, if I'm Kehani Wiley, uh, this is Bobby Bertani from New York, uh, and I'm interested in painting portraits... We, we, can't, we can't hear. You want to come up front? Standing up. Sure. Take the stage. Uh, <laughs> if this works at all, if I'm yes, that's better. Kehini Wiley uh, painting portraits of successful uh, black people, um, you know, as as it, uh, evocative of the Dutch masters, say. And I'm really not interested in painting portraits of successful white people because that's not what my art is about. My the, my art is about celebrating black life and black culture in this very specific way. And I, and I accept uh, commissions 
right? People can come to my studio and meet with me and, and discuss what I would do for them, but I'm just not painting portraits of white people because that, that's not what I'm interested in exploring as an artist. I think I am free to discriminate in that way. I think I am free to, to discriminate on the basis of race in, in painting a portrait. I can't be compelled to paint portraits of rich white people. Um, so I think we are back on a, a, a wedding cake that you sell in a restaurant that's open to the public is, is more of a commodity and in fact is not the same as a, as a Kahindi Wiley portrait. It's just not. Wait, wait. So, so your distinction would be if he has a storefront, if he doesn't have a storefront and it's all by commission, then it's different? In, no, in a sense, if, it, if it's a commodity, if it's a commodity good, um, I mean, maybe this is a malformed idea, but, but if, it's, if it's something that is, you know, if I have a cash register in the front of my store and I'm ringing up sales, that's not the same expressive... Uh, act as a so, photographer, painter, or writer. So you can discriminate with a Rolls Royce, but not a Ford. I, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the similar answer. It's it's an it's interesting. All the artists' uh, studio questions are really interesting. The simpler answer may be: it depends how the statute defines place of public accommodation. Uh, if it if like a parade, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, if it describes it as a business that's open regularly uh, with a storefront and you have under federal law you know, a certain number of employees and there's a threshold, um, then the artist who's uh, cooped up in the attic who only takes appointments twice a year might not under the statute qualify as a, as a place of public accommodation. But I'd be willing to go further. I mean, so let's assume that this artist who only paints uh, pictures of powerful African-Americans um, has a storefront, right? Uh, someplace in New York, uh, you can go in and what he offers is a degree of customization. Um, he'll do it in different sizes, he'll put a different wash on the picture that he's done. Um, now, I think he gets to control what the content of that painting is, right? He gets to control whether or not he paints white people or black people, but he doesn't get to refuse to sell the blue washed version uh, to the rich white person. Isn't it also a matter of the intent uh, of the artist uh, to the extent that the, the artist is being absolutely upfront and is saying, in effect, what the baker claims he was thinking, etc. If he said, the reason that I won't paint uh, of black people is because uh, I believe the Bible uh, uh, is purposefully uh, derogatory and harsh on uh, black people. They are unworthy in my biblical reading of being painted. Um, I think the state has more of an interest in that case and more of a justification in applying an anti-discrimination law that in your very thoughtful uh, hypothetical uh, about an artist who chooses uh, to be an artist rather than a tradesman, uh, and an artist who has a notion, right or wrong, or serious or unserious, uh, of art. Uh, my example was deliberately focused more on, you know, come on in off the street and I'll, and I'll do your, your painting. But uh, I, I would certainly acknowledge 
look, this is an area with, with hard, hard distinctions sometimes. Uh, every anti-discrimination law is at tension in some way with the First Amendment uh, when there is speech or expression uh, at issue. Uh, so we're, we're necessarily in an area uh, in, in which d different fact situations and for an anti-discrimination law, different motivations or different impact on the people who aren't being painted uh, will lead to different results. Maybe we'll make that a, a, one more question and then we'll, we'll quit. Uh, I, I have a question for Jim Turner. Um, Bob, in your, in your analysis, if you win, if that analysis wins, then the Baker... I, it's not my case. No, but I, I, I filed that analysis, brief. I, I, if that analysis wins, can the Baker put a sign on the front of the store saying, I don't make special pay for gay people? I don't make wedding cakes for gay people. All right, I don't make I don't make special wedding cakes for gay people. Um, probably so, and in the same way that uh, uh, I, I don't think the state would be able to force someone to put a sign in the window saying, um, "Here's what I believe about," or "Here's what I don't believe about gay people or anyone else." I, I'm, I wasn't asking about forcing him to do it. I'm asking if he's permitted to do it. Yeah, and I, I think they would. Some people would prefer that because then you don't have to have that awkward conversation where you walk in and they're wanting to have this cake, and, and then they're blindsided. Oh, yeah. That's, and you know. one, one of the things about one of the things about the California case that was just decided, and sorry, it's California, uh, is that uh, the baker had a cooperative arrangement with another baker that didn't have a a uh, religious concern about doing same-sex wedding cakes, and so uh, she referred the couple to the, to the other baker. He could already put a sign in the window now saying, I don't support gay marriage, right? Yes. Nothing stopping That's that. right. If you found your mind going back and forth uh, from one view to another, uh, you owe it to Sarah, Ilya, Steve, Bob, and JP, for engaging in a wonderful discussion. Will you join me in thanking you? That was the February 12th First Amendment Salon debate of Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Again, the participants were American University Law Professor Stephen Wormiel as moderator, Bob Corn Revere and Ilya Shapiro on the side of the baker, and J.P. Schnapper-Casteras and Sarah Warbello arguing on behalf of the commission. To learn more about the case, simply visit Google. There's plenty of information about it there. But you can also listen to the oral argument in podcast form through Oye, spelled O-Y-E-Z, like Oye, 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 the thing they say at the beginning of every Supreme Court argument. Anyway, the podcast shouldn't be too hard to find if you just search Masterpiece Cake Shop in your podcast app. But if you want to watch a video of this debate, you can do so at youtube.com slash thefireorg. Again, that's youtube.com slash thefireorg. For those of you wondering, I suspect the Supreme Court won't issue its decision in this case until the very end of the term in late June-ish. So you have some time to mull over these questions in your head. Before we get a definitive answer from Anthony Kennedy, <clears throat> I mean the Supreme Court. So stay tuned.
This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited and recorded by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can email us feedback at so to speak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Reviews seriously do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.